trying to get them to stop fighting. But even with no oxygen, they would still fight with each other. They were so angry. That's Dr. Lynn Snedden. And believe it or not, she's not talking about university academics. I'm a welfare scientist. I'm very interested in aquatic animals such as fishes and crabs and cuttlefish. Uh, Most of my work's aimed at improving the welfare of these animals. Dr. Snedden is a senior lecturer at the University of Gothenburg in the Department of Biological and Environmental Sciences. She has over 118 scientific publications, a number of which involve animals that many of us know very little about. I've always been really fascinated by the aquatic world and I have a real passion and love for marine animals and freshwater animals as well, and in particular fishes. Dr. Snedden is considered an expert in aquatic animal biology and welfare, and particularly animal personality, dominant-subordinate relationships, nociception, and pain. I asked her about her journey to this interesting and unusual field. I'm very interested in why animals do what they do. So I, I really want to understand what are the physiological mechanisms behind differences in animal behavior. I uh, started off my career, really did a PhD on uh, the behaviour and neurobiology of shore crabs, which are a little marine crab you probably find when you go rock pooling. Their behaviour was really fascinating. I was looking at competition and trying to get them to stop fighting. But even with no oxygen, they would still fight with each other. They were so angry. And, and that led me to um, postdoctoral positions in the neurobiology of fishes. And in particular, I got a job at the Roslyn Institute with Dr. Mike Gentle, who was an expert in pain in birds, in particular looking at issues in poultry, chickens and turkeys. And he had just got a grant on exploring pain in fishes. Now, this was back in 1999. And at that point, there was absolutely no evidence. And I was really intrigued by the whole question of, you know, if we do something to a fish that could cause tissue damage, does that give rise to pain as it would do in humans? If the fishes experience pain, can then we use that information to get them more protection, get them covered by legislation, and actually get people to improve the way that they treat fish? You've probably heard, at least once in your life, someone confidently proclaiming, fish don't feel pain. I know I heard it many times growing up, but when watching fishermen and seeing a fish struggle and gasp when it was hauled out of the water, I wasn't quite as sure. It seemed to me, even as a child, that perhaps this was one of those things that adults tell themselves, so as not to feel bad about the things that they do. Of course, at that age, I didn't have the language to express this, but the discomfort that I felt when given fish fingers for dinner, I would later realize was cognitive dissonance, so eloquently explained by Dr. Ben Schwarzberg in the previous episode. Cognitive dissonance means that Some practices you have collide with some of your moral beliefs. The idea that fish don't feel pain is somehow widespread, even among those who really care about animals. Many of my vegetarian friends would say it was fine to eat fish because they have no feelings. I'm sure you may know the Nirvana song, you know, it's okay to fish because they don't have any feelings. And and so there's kind of a stigma to accepting that fish experience pain. If you've made it as far as this in the series, you're probably among the majority of people who today believe that most animals do feel pain. 
but yet there is still some resistance to the idea that fish have such feelings among the general population. Why could this be? I think the issue really is that we have a very complicated relationship with fishes. We use them in so many different ways that we wouldn't do with many other animals. So some people eat them, so we farm them and we catch them in large numbers. Some people use them as kind of a hobby, you know, rest and relaxation. They go out and fish on as an individual or sport fish. So they see them as a kind of pastime or a thing that they do in their spare time. And also, we use fishes as laboratory models. So obviously I'm a scientist and I use quite a large number of fishes in experiments and fish have now become the second most popular experimental model behind mice. So we use more fish than rats in experiments now. And then of course people keep fish and they are the most numerous pet animal, but actually they're the third most popular behind dogs and cats. Something like in the UK, one in 10 households have pet fish in tanks or in ponds. And then of course we pay a lot of money to go and look at fish in public aquariums and we appreciate their beauty. So I think depending on how you see fish, whether you see them as a foodstuff, see them as a pastime or a sport, or whether you farm them or catch them in large numbers, I think that colours the way that you think about them. When we talk about fish, we mean a class of vertebrates that live in the water. However, this covers a huge range of species approximately 32,000, more than all other vertebrates combined. And many of these species are markedly different. What most of us think when we think of the word fish is finfish. This category includes familiar fish such as salmon, which have gills and a scaly body and lay eggs. Other types of fish include eels, lungfish, sharks, and weird species such as the weedy sea dragon, which kind of looks like something out of a Harry Potter film. I'll post a picture on our social media so you know where to find this particular fantastic beast. Whales, dolphins and their like are not fish, they are cetaceans, while crabs and lobsters are crustaceans, and squid and octopuses are classed as cephalopods. Despite being incredibly old on the evolutionary scale, having been on Earth for perhaps more than 500 million years and totaling massive numbers, we know surprisingly little about fish. Of course, we don't come into contact with fish if you don't keep pet fish at home. You don't really see fish very often, except maybe a public aquarium, because they're under the water. We don't have a direct relationship with them. So we don't come into contact with them unless we go scuba diving or snorkeling. We don't really see fishes in their normal life. And I think if people don't have that experience, then they have fish much less high up in their value system. It seems strange that we don't value fish, while we do seem to value other marine life, particularly cetaceans such as whales and dolphins, or reptiles such as turtles, and even birds such as penguins. When I think of campaigns to clean up the oceans or to ban certain types of fishing equipment, there always seems to be an appeal to the public based on the collateral damage to other marine creatures rather than the damage to fish themselves. Think of the famous Save the Turtles campaigns of the early 2000s, or the supermarket tuna labels that claim to be dolphin safe, although these themselves can be misleading, with more than 650,000 marine mammals killed or seriously injured by fishing equipment every year according to the Natural Resources Defence Council. But more on that on another episode. 
I asked Dr. Snedden, did she think this was evidence of the inadvertent speciesism that humans so often and casually display? Yes, very much so. I think we value um, turtles and dolphins and whales much more than we value the fish that we're catching to eat. And, and so I think it's actually a better strategy if you want uh, say, for example, ghost fishing gear um, banned or removed from the environment to t say they're killing all these lovely seabirds and and um, turtles and, um, uh, you know, dolphins, even sharks, I think, would even be better because we don't eat those and we care very much for them. We think they're wonderful animals. And that's the, that's the case. You know, the, the public value those sorts of animals, birds, mammals, way above fish. And this speciesism isn't confined to the realms of the general public either. It equally seems to plague academic and scientific circles, with many scientists and philosophers hesitant to accept that fish might feel pain, and even be sentient animals who deserve moral consideration. For example, in a 2016 article, Brian Key from the University of Queensland wrote, Only humans can report feeling pain. In contrast, Pain in animals is typically inferred on the basis of non-verbal behaviour. Unfortunately, these behavioural data can be problematic when the reliability and validity of the behavioural tests are questionable. Basic functional homologies can be mapped to structural homologies across a broad spectrum of vertebrate species. For example, olfaction depends on olfactory glomeruli in the olfactory bulbs of the forebrain. Visual orientation responses depend on the laminated optic tectum in the midbrain, and locomotion depends on pattern generators in the spinal cord throughout vertebrate phylogeny, from fish to humans. Here I delineate the region of the human brain that is directly responsible for feeling painful stimuli. The principal structural features of this region are identified and then used as biomarkers to infer whether fish are, at least, anatomically capable of feeling pain. Using the strategy, I conclude that fish lack the necessary neurocytoarchitecture, microcircuitry, and structural connectivity for the neural processing required for feeling pain. His argument does make sense. However, across the animal kingdom, there are countless examples of what is known as convergent evolution. This is when organisms not closely related independently evolve similar traits or structures as a result of having to adapt to similar environments or ecological niches. Some basic examples would be how fish and dolphins have evolved to be water-dwelling species, or how bats, birds and insects all independently evolved wings and the capacity to fly, independent of a common flying ancestor. We can also see evidence for convergent evolution in the brains of many different families of creatures, such as birds and mammals. Jared Roth, of the Brain Research Institute in Germany, explains it well in a 2015 paper titled Convergent Evolution of Complex Brains and High Intelligence. He states, Neuroscientists hold that cognitive functions, also called intelligence or mind, are bound to brain properties and that degrees in cognitive functions and intelligence correlate well with degrees of brain complexity. For a long time, the common view, even among biologists, was that the joint evolution of brains and minds started with diffuse nerve nets and very simple behaviours, and cumulated in a straightforward fashion in the human brain 
as a basis for the superior mental abilities that make humans unique. However, despite their indisputable complexity, the human brain and mind are the result of just one out of many lines of evolution. Complex brains are supposed to have evolved at least several times independently, often in distantly related taxa. Birds, for example, have vastly structurally different brains to us and other mammals. However, it's become evident that some birds, particularly corvids, that would be crows, magpies and ravens and the like, and parrot species, possess cognitive abilities, many of which appear to be comparable to those of primates, particularly when it comes to things like tool use. Yet, the skeptics for the capacity for pain in fish are still not convinced. There is a very small group of animal pain skeptics who believe that you must have a human-like brain to experience pain consciously. And so we have what's called the cortex, the forebrain, which is highly developed in humans and has six layers. And they believe that you must have this highly developed cortex to experience pain. And so only maybe primates and humans can consciously experience those suffering and discomfort associated with pain. However, that would mean that then dogs, cats, rats, mice, birds, etc., cannot experience pain even though there is a lot of research to show that they do experience pain. I simply don't agree with their definition. I believe that there is a lot of scientific evidence for many animal groups, including fish. And so it's really a kind of semantic argument where what is your definition and what do you believe? So that's the barrier, it's all to do with brain structure. But there are many opposing views to that opinion. But isn't it odd that some scientists deny that fish have some complex capabilities that humans have, yet use them as clinical models for human systems? Certainly. Fish are used as a model for clinical studies in dementia, Parkinson's, epilepsy, osteoarthritis, depression, fear, stress and pain. Yet there is a disconnect between all of those clinical situations and the capacity for fish to be capable of depression or fear or pain. And that's very strange to me because you would only use a model in your studies if it's relevant. So you have to accept that they do experience some form of pain, suffering, fear, you know, epilepsy that is akin to the human experience that there's a similarity there. Otherwise, your model is totally irrelevant and why would you use it? So based on her many years researching this subject, what is Dr. Sneddon's professional opinion? There could be parts of the fish brain that act exactly like that uh, multi-layered neocortex and they certainly have the very basic forebrain. So they have a single layered forebrain, whereas we have a six layered. So they do actually have a forebrain and some of the work that I've done with using MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, I've imaged the common carp brain and shown that actually there are areas in the forebrain and midbrain which are active during a painful stimulus. And so it's not just restricted to those nociceptive reflex centers in the hindbrain and spinal cord. So it's not just a reflex response. Actually, the higher parts of the brain are involved so really, there is a question of understanding where in the fish brain are these pain stimuli processed and are they similar or different to the human brain? 
So in effect, it may be there are other parts of the fish brain that act in the same way as the human brain. And it kind of defies the laws of evolution to say that some function has just suddenly arisen in primates and humans with no evolutionary ancestor. And how has her research informed this opinion? Initially, when I did the work, there was huge amount of scepticism or people just didn't know anything about fishes and, and the capacity for poor welfare. We discovered uh, nociceptors. These are receptors that detect pain. Wait, for the non-neuroscientists, can you explain what nociceptors and nociception is? Sure. Um, so the term nociception is just a simple detection of a noxious stimulus. Now, noxious stimulus are those that could or do cause tissue damage, injury to the skin, for example. And so noxious stimuli are things like high mechanical pressure, cutting, crushing, um, extremes of temperature. So we find low temperatures below four degrees Celsius, cold, um, very painful, and temperatures above 40 degrees Celsius, we find them painful. But also noxious chemicals like acids and venoms uh, cause uh, damage. And so these excite the nerve endings of these special pain receptors, which are termed nociceptors. So is nociception just a fancy word for pain? So when you, for example, touch something very hot, you instantly feel pain and withdraw your hand. Now that's nociception, that is the detection of the damaging stimulus, usually accompanied by that withdrawal response away from the damaging stimulus. Pain, on the other hand, is much more complicated and comprises both that sensory damage and also an emotional affective experience, you know, an internal subjective state, feelings of suffering and discomfort. So if you don't get cold water on that burned area and treat it, you will find that it starts to throb and really hurts. You cradle your hand, you don't use it as normal, and you feel pretty bad. And so your behavior is affected and your mood is affected. That's pain, that's the emotional component of the pain response. So nociception is simple detection and reflex withdrawal, whereas pain is much more complicated than that. And basically you have to have a prolonged behavioral change associated with these negative emotional feelings. So then is it possible to have nociception without pain? Certainly is. So uh, many bacteria and very simple organisms, very simple multicellular organisms can detect noxious stimuli and withdraw from them but they don't have a central nervous system to process that and so it is likely they don't have the emotional component of pain. So being much more complex than single-celled organisms, fish have these nociceptors? What I found was they do have these nociceptors and the responses are strikingly similar to mammals. Up until 2002, which is when I first published the paper that fish had nociceptors, there was absolutely no evidence for pain in fish, really. Wow, to make a discovery capable of an entire scientific paradigm shift is something every researcher dreams about. So what other research has this incredible discovery led to? Well, I've used 
neuroanatomy to look for the nociceptors in the fish nervous system and found them. I've used electrophysiology, which records from these nerves and characterized these pain receptors in great detail. I've seen that the brain is active at the molecular level using gene expression and also it's active at blood flow level when you use MRI, it measures blood flow. I've also been using imaging of live zebrafish, larvae, baby zebrafish, uh, using a transgenic strain where, where the brain lights up when it's stimulated and you can image that under a powerful microscope and showing that the forebrain and midbrain is very important. You can then use behavioural methods to determine what are the behavioural changes in response to a potentially painful stimulus. So for example, when we apply a very mild acetic acid, which is like vinegar to the frontal lips of the fish, they perform a rubbing behavior where they rub against the sides of the tanks and that might be very much like when we stub our toe we instantly grab it and start rubbing it and that helps to reduce the amount of pain that we're feeling they don't feed when they're in pain they're very inactive they sink to the bottom of the tank they show a stress response so you can measure cortisol in the blood and we produce cortisol when we are stressed and then you can apply pain relieving drugs to see if those physiological and behavioural changes are prevented. And I can say for a range of different drugs, such as aspirin, uh, morphine, they do prevent those changes in fish. The other more deeper questions you can ask is basically how important is it to the fish? Because it's very difficult to get into the fish's mind. I've never been a fish in a previous life. I wish I had been. But to, to actually know what the fish is experiencing. But what you can do is apply strategies. And one of the ones I've used is attention strategies. So we have an attention span. And some theories predict that we only have a limited pool of attention and we can only divert some attention to competing tasks so we can only divert one part to this task and one part to that task. Now pain is a very attention dominating state in humans and when we are in pain we do other things much less well and so pain is the imperative there it's incredibly important to us. So you can ask the same question of fish can I distract the fish from the pain? Can I divert its attention away from the pain? And so what I've used is fear tests, applying a fear cue to the animals. Will they show uh, an avoidance of that strange cue, um, show a fear response? And when they're in pain, they do not show any fear response. So pain is more important. We can also apply a predator cue. Now, the motivation to avoid being eaten is very strong in animals. However, when fish are in pain, they don't show appropriate anti-predator behaviors. They don't try to escape and they don't seek cover. And so again, pain is much more important in that case. So it's a, it's a very crucial state for the fishes to be in and it does affect their behavior and physiology. And, and as such, I would say that, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt, fish experience pain. So obviously this type of research involves inflicting some pain on the fish, which seems counterintuitive if you care for them deeply, as Dr. Snedden clearly does. This is an example of how muddy the waters get, no pun intended, when we try to advocate for non-human rights and welfare improvements. None of us want to inflict pain in animals, however without solid scientific evidence that they can actually feel pain, 
Those who don't particularly care for the welfare of the animals they use, such as industrialized animal protein companies, have free reign to continue abusing animals in whatsoever which way. Dr. Sneddon seems keenly aware of this. I've really used the research to try and drive the agenda for improving welfare in fishes. And they are quite a neglected species and they are subject to what I'd call discrimination or speciesism, where, you know, we're very concerned about dogs and cats. They're all cuddly. We like mammals in general, but fish are less cared for. However, I think that's really changed over the last 20 years. And I think now fish are very much a public concern. What's been the driving factor behind this change in public concern for fish? I think with documentaries like Blue Planet, David Ambrose done a wonderful job of promoting life under the sea and also the most recent documentary Sea Spiracy, you know, which has been criticised, it has pros and cons, but I think the best thing that can come out of it is that it's highlighted some issues which are not new, sadly, but that will get the public talking and thinking about the way that we're using fishes. How are we catching them? Are we affecting other species when we catch them? Are we damaging the environment? Really getting that discussion going is probably the best thing that can come from that documentary. And I think that will help shape public opinion. And why is this important? What are the problems with how we currently use fish? What are the barriers to improving welfare for them? The perception of fish welfare, I think many of the industries that use fish, if they accept and embrace welfare, and some do, um, but not all, then they have to um, accept that they may have to improve some of their practices and that might impact upon their financial income. Last week, I spoke to Dr. Ben Schwarzberg on the language that is used around animals and animal products. And there is something similar going on with fish. Yeah, we, we use the same language that we use for plants. And so fish are seen as some sort of crop or plant materials. So when you catch fish in aquaculture, you'll say we harvest the fish. Now you wouldn't say we harvest pigs or cows or sheep or chickens. You would say you would slaughter the, the pigs, etc. So we use harvest instead of actually slaughtering. And that is very strange uh, in terms of the way that we think about fish. It's almost like they're de-animalized, akin to being dehumanized. And so you don't think of them as an animal, you think of them as a plant crop thing that you know has no feelings. And I find that quite strange. We farm fish in incredibly high numbers, really unnaturally so. And these super crawlers are catching hundreds of thousands of fish at a time. And when you think about individual suffering, I mean, it's it's massive if you look at the individuals because we're catching something like a trillion fish a year. And, you know, no other animals do we use in this way in terms of those numbers. And the magnitude of, of what we're doing is, is immense. And so we're causing possible suffering to a huge amount of animals. And I think it's a way of probably coping with that and justifying it is to use terms that are akin to farming plants like rice and wheat, that it makes it easier perhaps to think about and to justify. Proponents of fishing, however, might justify it in other ways. 
like the need for feeding many, many humans on this planet and the need of animal protein. When fish that are caught that you know are not the target species, really those fish can sometimes be just discarded and so they're you know left on deck to suffocate and die and then just thrown overboard, which is such a waste of life and, and such a waste of 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 protein really when you think about it in terms of food stuff but also of course there's the welfare of these animals to consider why can't we sort of switch the types of species that we're eating and why can't these animals be part of the fishing quota so that you're catching less of the target species and then trying to sell more varied species at fish markets that would be a really good solution and it would help the fish populations to recover because some species are overfished. And so we need to tackle that problem as well. This is an interesting angle I hadn't considered before. I don't eat fish myself and have often subscribed to the increasingly accepted idea that in order to reduce harm to animals and the environment, we need to cut certain things out of our diets. But for those who can't or won't give up eating fish, could adding to their diets then be a strategy for reducing harm? Yeah, certainly becoming vegetarian or vegan is one of the strategies that, you know, then there's less demand for fish, so perhaps there'll be less fishing. But I always think you, you won't improve the welfare of these animals because not everybody's going to stop eating. I know many people who love fish and seafood. I personally don't eat fish or seafood, but they absolutely adore eating it and they're not going to stop. So why not campaign for better welfare? and yes, a more varied species of fish in the diet rather than trying to just stop the demand. And here and now in this particular point in time, we effectively do use animals, we do eat fish, we do eat seafood. And so we need to think about ways in which we can drive the industries to improve the way they're caught, the way they're treated and the way that they're formed. And what about small time fishermen or people that fish for pleasure. I know many anglers, people who catch fish as a recreation or people who catch fish for food. And you could argue that if you catch the fish for food, there is a benefit to you and your family that outweighs the cost of the fish. Of course, the cost of the fish is that it's been hooked, so the tissue damage has been caused, that's painful. Then the animal is dragged out of the water, it's suffocating in air. I mean, as long as you do that quickly and humanely, then you could say you can minimize the cost of the fish, but there's a benefit that you're feeding humans. However, when you look at catch and release, there is an ethical issue there because you are in effect catching the fish for your own enjoyment. And I think people who fish are nice people and that they don't want others to consider that they are being cruel to an animal because they're causing it pain for their own enjoyment. So if people do decide to go fishing, what can they do to minimize this pain and suffering for fish? There are things that anglers can do, such as using a barbless hook so that the damage in the fish is, is less and that you can get the hooks out easier. Using knotless nets so there's less abrasion on the fish. There's lots of things anglers can do to improve the experience for fish. However, there are some ethical issues surrounding that. And I think that's a major stumbling block for that section um, to accept pain and fish. My conversation with Dr. Sneddon has given me a lot to think about, and I hope it's been the same for you. She had some more fascinating things to say about the fish industry, which I hope to include in a later episode. However, if you would like to learn more about fish welfare and abilities, 
I would be very pleased if people Googled Pain of Fish and read some of the online papers that I've written. Also, there are book chapters and a book called The Welfare of Fishes and another book chapter called Mental Capacities of Fishes that would be great for people to read if they'd like some further information on sentience, intelligence and pain of fish. I'm also on Twitter if you'd like to follow me. Um, I mainly tweet about uh, welfare issues, not only of fish but other animals. As always, I will include links to everything I've referenced in today's podcast on our website, animalisticpodcast.com, which my tech assistant, Musti, has been working hard at to get online. You can also follow Animalistic on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We will be taking a one-week break to round up some more brilliant scientists and scholars to interview. But in the meantime, if you want to learn more about sentience in animals, which we haven't quite covered yet, you can check out another great podcast by Jamie Woodhouse called Sentientism. If you want to get your society and philosophy fix, I highly recommend a wonderful podcast called Ixic by my good friend Andrea Martinez and her co-host Andrea Celeste. They analyze the wonderful horrors of society through philosophy, mythology, the arts, and poetic thinking. They release monthly episodes in English and Spanish, and you can find them on most podcast platforms. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. As usual, my thanks to our executive producer, Claire, who's working hard on helping new listeners find this podcast. You too can help us out by subscribing and sharing our work with anyone you think might be interested. A huge thanks to today's guest, Dr. Lynn Snedden, for whom I will leave the last word. I've been your host, Catherine Cray, and until next time, stay safe, be kind. I would love the public to know more about how intelligent fish are, that they are sentient beings, that they form relationships with each other, form relationships between species, that they have very complicated communication and signaling behaviours, that they are capable of not only experiencing negative emotions like pain, fear and stress, but also positive emotions, and that they are conscious beings, and, and in fact we should protect them and give them as much care as we would mammals.